Welcome to one more edition of Politics Done Right. I'm Egberto Willis. Today we are honored once again. I've told this guy every time he comes out with something new, we've got to have it. And Tom Hartman is here with us. For hey, Egberto. Hey, how you doing, buddy? You know, but you know, you, you answered before I got a chance to give you the proper introduction, my brother. I want to give you that. You know, Tom Hartman is the progressive national and international talk show host. He's been named the most important progressive host by Talkers Magazine. He's also a New York Times bestselling author whose books have been translated into multiple languages. The Tom Hartman Show has been a top 10 talk show, talk radio show for over a decade. It's one that all of us live up to. All of us that are doing this, this the guy. And he's here to discuss his new book, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy for from the ruling class. Tom Hartman, how are you doing today, my brother? I'm great. It's, it's always wonderful to be here with you, Egberto. Well, I mean, it's always Thank great you. being with you. It's always great seeing you. Last time we met, we could actually shake hands and have a hug in, in where was that? Philadelphia, was Philly, I think. Yeah, Net Roots in Philadelphia. Now we're all locked up for a year. Yeah, <laughs> it's very strange. But, but, you know, we're still alive. Hey, we're still alive. We're still, and we, we made it through so far, so good. We just have to hold on a bit longer. But anyhow, Tom, um, you told me you were going to write this book. And, you know, I hadn't read it. I scanned through it. You know, I, I knew the interview was coming up. And I said, oh, I got to get to it. And, and I went to a particular part on it to say, you were reading the tea leaves, man. Mm. You were reading the tea leaves on on the oligarchy, uh, the formation, not only the formation of the oligarchy, but how it needed a sort of a uh, insurrection uh, to come, I mean, lead the, the insurrection to kind of metastasize itself. I'll tell you what, why, why don't you tell me why did you write the book, first of all? Well, I, I wrote the book because I've been watching this process uh, my entire life, and I'm getting increasingly alarmed by it. Um, uh, over the last 20 years, we have seen America pretty much slide into full-blown oligarchy. And oligarchy is defined as rule by the rich, essentially. A small number of very wealthy people take over the political system of a nation. And the principal signal of an oligarchy, the, the, the signature that you see in the data that indicates oligarchy, is when government stops doing what the majority of the people want, which is what's called democracy, and starts doing what the oligarchs want, you know, the very, very rich, which is oligarchy. And uh, a couple of years ago, Gillens and Page, these two researchers out of uh, Northwestern and, and Princeton, published this mind-boggling study where they went back and looked at pre-Reagan revolution, by and large, what the most majority of people wanted, pre-1980, what the majority of people wanted got translated into legislation. It's how we got Medicare and Medicaid and long-term unemployment insurance and food stamps and Pell Grants and, and housing assistance and, and you know, anti-discrimination laws and civil rights laws and voting rights. I, I could go on, right? I, I mean, the list would be a hundred things long. That all happened in the 40s, 50s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, and right up until the early 1980s. Reagan comes in and flips our system upside down. It really was a revolution and not just an economic revolution, a political revolution. He brings in the oligarchs with a little help from the Supreme Court, and, and they, they set up shop and take over. And what Gillens and Page found was that 
um, you know, they published their study in 2014, but what they found is in the, in the roughly decade and a half leading up to that, since, since about 2000, what the average person wants as measured by public opinion polls on public policy almost never gets translated into public policy. It's a, the, the association between the two has been reduced to what they described as random noise. Whereas what the oligarchs want, what the top 1% wants is almost always translated into public policy or, is, or when public policy is created, it's most often driven by what the oligarchs want. You know, there was basically one um, legislative accomplishment of the entire four years of the Trump administration, a $2 trillion tax cut for billionaires and big corporations. That's oligarchy. The problem in Griffin, and the, and, the, and the thing that keeps me up at night is that oligarchies tend to be very unstable. They tend not to last very long, typically not more than a generation. And what comes out of them typically is one of two things. Either the people rise up, overthrow the oligarchs, and, and you flip back into a democracy. This is when a democracy becomes an oligarchy. Either, either the, the small D Democrats or small R Republicans, the people who believe in a democratic republic, flip the country back, which happened here in the United States twice, once with the Civil War, when we fought back the oligarchy in the South, and once in the 1930s when Franklin Roosevelt fought yeah. back the oligarchs who had crashed the economy. Or the oligarchs look around and say, hey, pretty good system we got here. We're scraping all this money off the, off the middle class, and we're getting richer and richer, and these pesky people, we got to do something about it. And they flip the government into a police state. And you're watching that happen right now in Hungary, in Russia, in, in, in Venezuela, in uh, Brazil, in the Philippines, in Turkey, in, in um, uh, Egypt. I mean, you, you could just go through the list of countries that at one point were democratic, the oligarchs took over, and then when the oligarchs were challenged, when the people were in the streets, the oligarchs said, okay, that's it, end of, end of discussion, we're going to go full police state. And we're on that knife's edge right now here Let in me the United States. You just mentioned police state and, you know, uh, did, did it bother you when you realized there were a whole lot of organized ex-military guys uh, going through the Capitol during the insurrection? Didn't surprise me at all. Not at all? No, I mean, that, in fact, that's what you would expect. Um, the fascism is most attractive to people who have what are called authoritarian personalities. Robert Altmaier wrote a book about this called The Authoritarians. John Dean, um, based on Altmaier's work, uh, work and research, wrote a book called Conservatives Without Conscience, which is about authoritarianism within the conservative movement. And you know, the broad estimate is about 20% of Americans are strong authoritarians. Um, and 99% of authoritarians are authoritarian followers. They're authoritarian leaders in their own homes. They tend to be the husbands who beat their wives or yell right. at their kids or whatever. But um, in the grand scheme of their lives, they're really authoritarian followers. They're looking for Big Daddy to keep them safe. This comes out of, uh, or the best guess is, uh, there's, there's a big debate about this in the psychology community, but the best guess is this comes out of uh, periods of, of terrible insecurity during their childhood. And uh, so, you know, they're looking for somebody to say, don't worry, I'll take care of you. I'm in charge. I alone can, can solve the problem. Trump, yes. And, and, and they bind to that big daddy and just, you know, you can't peel them away because this is, this is now the life raft for them, the psychological, emotional, and political life raft. And people who join the military and people who become police officers are 
way, you know, authoritarians are way overrepresented in those two populations. Instead of being 20% of the population, the percentage of people who are authoritarians in the police and the military is, uh, depending on which study you look at, and which area you're looking at, and which part of the country you're looking at, almost always well over 50%. And sometimes oh, much over 50%. Wow. Yeah. So, so of course, if you've got authoritarian followers in the military or among police departments, they're going to bond with an authoritarian leader like Donald Trump or Ted Cruz or Josh Hawley or, or Tom Cotton, uh, you know, the guys who are competing to be the heirs to the mantle of Trump. And uh, so, no, I wasn't surprised. I, I, I was horrified, but I wasn't surprised. It was disconcerting because um, I, I, I wonder many times if Donald Trump thought he had more support in these forces, you know, remember how the National Guard didn't show up until very much later. And if he thought, I, I wondered if, if the plan just kind of went awry a little bit, but that it was much better plan than we thought. I think it was. And, and I think, you know, we've got this smoking gun memo now that the acting Secretary of Defense, who Donald Trump put into his position the day after it was announced that he lost the election issued this memos to the DC National Guard saying, you may not show up unless I give the permission. And for four or for four hours, at least during the storming of the Capitol, numerous people were begging him for that permission and he was withholding it. Um, that said, you know, I, I, I sure hope the FBI is interviewing this guy and all the people around him. But my question about that, what do you think they really, what do you think the intent would have been to hurt the, hurt the Congress people, leave us without, like, uh, decapitate the government, the, the, con yes. the, the congressional yes. part? And yes. then hang Mike Pence, assassinate Nancy Pelosi and whoever else you can find. Um, and then Donald Trump would walk in and declare himself emperor, basically. And it would be the end of the American experiment and the beginning of strongman rule, just as has happened in Russia, in Hungary, in Germany in the 30s in uh, uh you know in italy in the 20s uh etc do you think that would have been sustainable with the current military that we have it's hard to say you know where trump tripped up is he has strong support in the military and among police among the rank and file because that's where your authoritarian right are. um he does he didn't have the level of support that he needed in the senior command of the military. I believe that the one force that probably prevented America from, from experiencing a complete Trump coup was the Joint Chiefs. You know, was the, the letter that they wrote, maybe? The, the, mil the whole military command structure. The, these guys take seriously their commitment to the Constitution and to American democracy. Right. It, it is a shame how close we came. Now, a part two of your book, how oligarchy led to the Civil War. Tell me why did you do that? <laughs> Well, you know, this is the, the, you know, I mentioned earlier that twice we've had oligarchs rise up and challenge democracy in the United States. Um, the first was in the, in the uh, early, the first half of the 1800s. And uh, it was the result of a technological innovation, the cotton gin. Mm -hmm. um, cotton seeds are notoriously difficult to pull out of cotton. Mm -hmm. And the bottleneck in cotton production was taking out the seeds, cleaning what's called cleaning the cotton or carding the cotton. And, and it had to be done by hand, you know, and, and um, Eli Whitney invented this contraption, the cotton gin that could do the work. One machine could do the work of 50 enslaved people trying to clean the cotton. And, but it was a very expensive machine and it came into common, you know, it was, it was widely available to purchase by 1815, more or less, 1810. It was invented in 1798. 
um, but it took a while to get it to market. And so the largest plantations in the South bought these cotton gins, and now they were literally 50 times more productive. I mean, cleaning the cotton was the big bottleneck between growing it and shipping it. Mm -hmm. You know, most of it went to Europe, much of it went to Europe anyway. And um, by eliminating that bottleneck, they became so much more productive and so much more wealthy that they wiped out all their smaller neighbors. Because there were a lot of, you know, 10 acre and 50 acre and 100 acre cotton farms in the South, across the South, a lot of them. And by the 1830s, by the middle of the 1830s, the vast majority of them were gone. They had been run out of business. Their land had been bought by the giant plantations. And the people who'd lived on those farms were now tenants uh, you know, growing cotton, still growing cotton on the same land on the same and living in the same house, but they didn't own it anymore. Um, sort of like what we saw when Reagan deregulated, the, right. you know, stopped enforcing the antitrust laws in 83. And, and suddenly we had farm age, you know, Willie Nelson trying to help out farmers. It was kind of the same dynamic. Well, what happened was over the next decade from 1835 to 1845, these uh, giant plantations, uh, the, the, the people who owned them reached out to take over political power in the Southern states, succeeded in doing that, and turned the, uh, the, southern, the southern states, which already were police states. I mean, the Second Amendment was passed to protect the slave right. in Virginia and, and South Carolina. I think we've talked about this on your program. Yeah. Um, so they already had that police state apparatus, and they flipped their government into just full-blown fascist oligarchy. oligarchy. But the problem they had was that seeing a functioning democracy north of the Mason-Dixon line was creating, you know, was rousing the rabble, as it were. And, and not just the people who were enslaved, but, you know, the, the, the white small farm owners who'd been thrown off their land as a result of this, this consolidation. And so the, the oligarchs of the South decided that their best means to, to survival was to end democracy in the North. And so they declared war on us. And we fought that war and 600,000 people died. And, uh, you know, we, we broke up that oligarchy to a certain extent. I mean, if Lincoln hadn't been assassinated, we would have succeeded. He, he, this huge mistake Lincoln made in choosing Johnson as his VP, but that's a digression. That's a whole other story. So then the second time uh, it happened, again, it was technology. It was, it was the, the railroad and steel and oil oligarchs who came out of the Industrial Revolution in the 1880s. Standard oil and all of them, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Rockefeller, Carnegie, et cetera. And, and, and Morgan. And, and, and these guys you know, rose up and, and took over the government again. In fact, in the 1920s, uh, Harding, Hoover, uh, Coolidge, and Hoover put them in charge. I mean, you had Morgan as the Secretary of the Treasury. Um, and they crashed the economy, of course, because they had just, you know, during the roaring 20s, so-called, uh, the wealth of average people actually went down, pay actually went down, but, the, but all this money went to the top, and they had to have someplace to put that money, they poured it in the stock market, created a huge bubble, and, you know, the rest is history. But that opened a space for Franklin Roosevelt to take them on. And when he started talking about he was going to tear down the oligarchy, he called them economic royalists, when he was going to take them down, they, they got this group of 100,000 uh, right-wing veterans, this, this very, very conservative veterans group, um, signed up to go to the White House and kidnap and either kill or imprison Franklin Roosevelt. And they were going to replace him, you know, with a good conservative Republican. And I mean, this was an actual coup attempt. Yeah, that, I, I, I didn't know you were going to, I, I, I read about that, yeah. 
Yeah, and the only reason that it fell apart was because the, the, the it's called the businessman's conspiracy, you can look it up, was because these guys tried to hire Smedley Butler, who was the most famous military hero in the country at the time, you know, the hero of World War I and the Spanish-American War, and Butler blew the whistle on. And, uh, you know, the Congress held hearings for about a week and then FDR shut it all down because he was afraid other people would get ideas. But he then went to war with the oligarchs and put them back in the bottle and they stayed there until the 1970s, until the mid 1970s, and then the Supreme Court let them back out again with these two decisions in 76. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that 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 is a shame. And and now I think you're this is the one that you call not a third oligarchy rises yeah. with Reagan. Uh, what would you call Trump the the you know the Trump era? Well, it's it's the logical extension of the process that Reagan put into place, which was shifting America from being a functioning democracy and into a full-blown oligarchy. Um, You could could build a case, and I do in the book, that uh, Reagan and many of the people who were with him on this actually thought they were doing the best thing for America. Uh, Back in 1951, Russell Kirk in his book, The Conservative Mind, that kicked off the modern conservative movement, animated Barry Goldwater, William F. Buckley, and all these other guys you know, made the argument that if the middle class continued to get wealthier and wealthier at that point in time in 51, the middle class was actually their wealth and their income was growing at a faster rate, percentage rate than was the wealth of the top 1%. And Russell Kirk said, if these, if this middle class gets wealthier and wealthier and more and more independent, you're going to start seeing um, young people disrespecting their elders. You're going to (laughs) see a breakdown of society. Young people will disrespect their elders. Women will disrespect men and their, and their husbands minorities will demand equality with white people and society is going to fall apart. And, and, you know, at first and throughout the fifties and even the early sixties, people thought, eh, Russell Kirk, he's a crank. Um, you know, and Barry Goldwater's into him, but he's still a crank. But then in 60, 61, the birth control pill was legalized. So by 64, 65, you had a full blown women's rights movement in the work, you know, want, wanting rights in the workplace and independence from their husbands. I, you know, I still remember in 1972, um, it was when the law changed in 71. I, Louise and I got married in 71. For her to get a credit card, the bank you required had, my signature. Yes, imagine that. get credit cards. So, so anyhow, you had this full-blown women's rights movement, women burning their bras. You had young people saying, hell no, I'm not going to go to Vietnam and burning their draft cards and take, smoking pot and growing their hair long. And you had African-Americans, you know, Martin Luther King leading a civil rights movement. And, and by the late 60s, you had cities that were on fire. And at that point, the conservatives who, who had been poo-pooing Russell Kirk looked around and said, holy crap, he was right. And, and, and you know, our society is disintegrating and we've got to k- dial back the wealth of the middle class. And so Reagan comes into power thinking the most effective way to do that is to destroy the unions. And, and as a special bonus, the unions are the principal funding source for the Democratic Party. So, hey, we can create a permanent... Uh, permanent majority exactly. moral majority yeah you, what is interesting is that there's another piece that i read you know like i said i selectively go to certain parts of the book and i noticed you 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 spoke about something i like to talk about a whole lot and that was how the powell manifesto was so well designed to yeah. execute the, the the skeleton of this movement why don't you tell us a little about that well in in 71 you know, in the late 60s, as I said, it became obvious to, to these conservative politicians that, that, or they believed that Russell Kirk was right. And they thought that we were in the middle of a process that was going to lead to anarchy and the disintegration of America. And so 
the, the head of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Eugene Sindor, um, met with his old friend and neighbor, uh, Lewis Powell, who was a tobacco lawyer, and asked him to come up with a blueprint for recovering America's greatness, greatness, you know, for stopping the chaos. And what Powell said was, okay, we've got to pack the courts with our people. You know, no more of the civil liberties BS. We've got to take over the schools and the colleges. We need to control the textbooks in elementary and high schools. And we need, and we need to uh, be putting our people in, as professors in uh, poli-sci and, and econ classes in particular. Um, so no more socialism being taught in our schools and history classes as well. Um, you know, we need to, we need our, our people need to buy the media. We need to get control of the media and create our own media infrastructure. We need to build think tanks that can get our ideas out and produce papers that will be, you know, our letters to the editor and op-eds that will be published all over newspapers and, and across the country, um, you know, and on and on and on. I mean, you're very familiar with the Powell Memo too. Um, and the, by that was in 71 and 72 Nixon put him on the Supreme Court yes uh, you know, he was part of these two decisions <laughs> Buckley and, and Bellotti in 76 and 78 that said that when billionaires or corporations own politicians it's no longer considered bribery or corruption oh no it's, it's free, it, free it's speech, speech. Exactly. it's speech man you know you remember we were we we did a few things together move to amend in Washington mm -hmm. DC I mean yeah uh, so yeah, it, it is it is mind-boggling that uh, that how how things come around. Now, folks, b b before we go any further, you have to get this book, American Oligarchy. And let me tell you, because I think one of one of the things I like about your books is that it doesn't only come with complaints; it actually says what we have to do. And the, the and and whenever I pick up your book, that is actually the first place I normally go to to kind of check out. Okay, so what do we do? So, folks, you need to go ahead and get that book. It is the hidden history of American oligarchy reclaiming our democracy from the ruling class. But if I have Tom here, I got to pick Tom's brain on where we are right now. So Tom, yeah. where are we in our democracy? But before I handle that, I want to say neoliberal versus conservative differences. Well, increasingly, there's not much difference. I mean, you know, historically, uh, conservative, conservative meant, um, in favor of social change, but slow and gradual. Don't disrupt things in the process of improving things. Um, that was kind of the functional definition up until the 1950s. Obviously, there were strains of, of you know, segregationist racism uh, within the conservative movement and, and uh, uh, bizarre machoism and things like that. But they were they were viewed as the as the lunatic fringe. I mean, witness uh, Dwight Eisenhower's 1954 letter to his brother Edgar. You know, saying you know there are some. Uh, you know, Texas oil billionaires who think you can get rid of social security and do away with these uh, social welfare programs. He says their number is small and they are stupid. Um, but uh, the, the neoliberal philosophy, the idea that basically society should be run for the ruling class um, is just an extension of this idea of creating stability in society. And uh, you know, it infected the Democratic Party in large part because Reagan was so effective at destroying the unions in the 12 years of the Reagan-Bush administration that Bill Clinton had to go hat in hand to bankers and insurance companies begging for money. Um, and, you know, he created the DLC so that corporate money could be funneled into the Democratic Party. Before that, the Democratic Party was almost entirely funded by average working people through their union dues, you know, it was the unions. But uh, Reagan, Reagan gutted the unions. 
Um, so, uh, you know, when he you started. You know what is so it, sad about the unions part, though? Um, and, and I find it, I don't know how, I try to find a way to get around it. It's amazing how negative a large percentage of Americans are to unions. And that is because of how they, you know, the, the, these guys have done such a good job of defining socialism, defining unions, defining what those key words mean. And it kind of cauterizes into people's heads that union, bad, socialism, bad, all these things that, yeah. that come 40 years of propaganda. Way. Yes. Yeah. And so we go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I finish your thought. I'm sorry. Yeah, what I was going to say that I, I think that the job that you do, the job that we're trying to do in the independent progressive media is what has to keep getting done because the reality is right now, um, there's no one speaking to, there's no one really trying to, I don't, want to, I don't want to sound presumptuous and say educate Americans, but to at least let them be more aware of how things really work. Your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think that uh, the key to solving our, you know, I talked about the media in the book, you know, that, that we need to be building a strong progressive media infrastructure, and we don't have that right now. Um, but in terms of where we're at right now, I mentioned that oligarchies typically don't last more than a generation before they either are overthrown or they become police states. And the, the principal weapon that oligarchy uses against democracy is cynicism. Mm -hmm. Cynicism is poison to democracy. And because democracy requires citizen engagement. And if citizens become cynical, they don't engage. And therefore, you can't have a functioning. Mm -hmm. And so we are, you know, we've got about 18 months here. And if Joe Biden and the Democrats can't uh, destroy the filibuster and actually accomplish things for the American people so that we can go back to what public opinion polls show the majority of Americans want, the majority of Americans get. I mean, for, for over 20 years now, the majority mm -hmm. of Americans have wanted no more student debt, no more medical debt, you know, national health care, et cetera. Um, if we can't, if they can't pull this off in the next 18 months, then the next president will be a Republican and will be almost certainly a fascist. And that's the end of the American experiment. Um, because people I, they'll say the same thing they did, you know, with Obama and Clinton, you know, nice talk, but hey, you didn't get a damn thing done. I, you know, and I'm wondering if I'm seeing Biden, who I once considered a true neoliberal, I am actually wanting to, I'm actually seeing a little, another side of him. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, with the 1.9 trillion and sticking to it with the with the stipends that he's given to the American people, which eventually should turn into something like basic income, I am starting to see sort of a resolve that says we're not going to repeat the same mistakes. And if they do that, even if they're not a full fledged, full progressive, I think it, it it's a good start. Your thoughts on that? I completely agree, and it's why I have not been willing to go full circular firing squad on Biden at all. I mean, not at all. You know, I, I, I didn't like that they are, you know, that they're going to means test this 1400 bucks, but, you know, I'm not willing to take anybody down over that. Uh, the, the future, I can't say this strongly enough, emphatically enough, the future of democracy depends on the ability of the Democratic Party to prove that a democracy can deliver results to the people. And the Republicans are going to fight that every step of the way because they want that cynicism. 
They want people to say, ah, oh, those Democrats, they talk big, but they never do a damn thing. I think I'll vote for the Republican. I mean, keep in mind, Donald Trump stole Bernie Sanders' platform. Yes. Donald Trump ran on raising yes. taxes on rich people. He said, I'm going to get slaughtered by this thing. You know, people are going to hate my, my My friends are going to hate me. He, he campaigned on a, on a national health care. So he said, everybody's going to have health care and it's going to be cheaper than you ever, than you can imagine. It'll be better. And, and, and he campaigned on bringing factories home from overseas. You know, this was Bernie Sanders' agenda. Yes. He was lying through his teeth, but, you know, people were like, okay, cool. We're ready for some friggin' change. But you know what is interesting, um, Tom? Uh, Steve Smith, Republican turned Democrat, mm. said exactly what you just said. Yeah. Our well, democracy. It's not, it's not like it's a mystery. It's fairly obvious. Maintaining our democracy runs through the Democratic Party right now. Yeah. I agree. That, and, Sch and Schmidt is talking like I am. I mean, he's like, you know, we're at this crisis point. I, I you know, I've, I've been, I was first shocked and now very impressed by Steve, the, Steve Schmidt. And I'd love to have a conversation with him. I doubt he would be willing to do it in public about. I tried you know, to get him. I mean, I, I wrote a piece about him. He liked the piece. When he liked the piece, he followed me. I said, the good opportunity to get him now. I try to get him. When you get him, let me know. <laughs> <laughs> but but anyway uh tom why I, he why he stuck with the republicans so long if he if he's this thoughtful and insightful I, I, no he he's a true conservative he re, he believes in small government he's he's a true small government type conservative where the free you know i mean he, he doesn't he's a good guy but he he doesn't believe government should be as big as it is. I do believe in big government. I think government needs to be big. That's my opinion, because I think it needs to be bigger than any corporation. It needs to be as big as it needs to be to set to, to meet the needs of the people. Of the people. Of the country, you know? yeah. yeah. And that also means being bigger than the corporations as well, because if the corporations are bigger than the government, they own the government, you know. Right. So when you have oligarchy. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, Tom, I asked this, you you know this. What would you like to tell me that I didn't ask you and I should have? I think you did a very good job, Egbert. <laughs> you know, hey, guys, if, 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 if Brother Hartman says that, it means something. Tom, it's been my pleasure to have you on Politics Done Right as usual. Folks, please remember to uh, get the book, The Hidden History of American Oligarchy, Reclaiming Our Democracy from the Ruling Class. New York Times bestseller, buddy. Tom, thank, thank you for you. being on Politics and Right. Thank you, Egberto. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on your program with you. You do great. Thank, thank you. you. We spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to, trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.